to 36, and it can be found on 888 of the Church Bible. Uh, so last week we saw how much God loved the world um, that had rejected him and that God sent his precious son to die on the cross uh, to save it. So John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Aeon near Salim because water there was plentiful because water there was, there was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptised, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptising, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Esther and Nate. Uh, it would be great uh, if you can have... Uh your Bibles open uh, to John chapter 3. Uh, also, um, I find it very helpful personally when I listen to sermons to jot down a few notes. So if you have your bulletins, uh, it'd be good if you can scribble down some, some thoughts as you uh, hear God's word this morning. Uh, but let me lead us in prayer and uh, we'll get into it. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, so much uh, for your love for us. Uh, thank you that in your kindness you sent your Son into this world uh, to save the world. And uh, we thank you that uh, as saved people, uh, you've gathered us together uh, around your gracious word of truth. And uh, we pray that you would help us to humbly listen to the things that you say uh, this morning. And uh, please help us to uh, hear and to inwardly digest uh, and to respond with faith and obedience. Uh, to the things that you have to teach us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, friends, uh, one of the greatest sporting spectacles I have ever seen was the 4x100 men's relay at the 2012 London Olympics. Uh, does anyone remember seeing uh, that relay? A uh, few of us. Uh, it's the race where the Jamaican men's relay team smashed the world record 
to take the gold medal and the glory of being Olympic champions. But the race was really all about one man. Uh, it was about Usain Bolt, who was the fastest man on the planet at the time. Uh, no one really remembers the names of the other three runners. Um, does anyone remember who the other three runners were in that race? Um, neither do I. In fact, no one really remembers the name of the third runner whose job it was to simply pass the baton to Usain Bolt so that he could run away and win the gold and the glory for Jamaica. Now, uh, we've been looking at John's Gospel, and uh, specifically we've been seeing the early stages of Jesus' adult ministry, haven't we? Uh, We've seen Jesus calling the first disciples, for example. Uh, We've seen uh, Jesus performing his first sign or miracle in turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. Uh, We've seen Jesus clearing the temple, and we've seen Jesus speaking to individuals. Uh, Last time we saw Jesus speaking of the new birth to a man called Nicodemus. Uh, Next time we'll see Jesus speaking to a Samaritan woman at uh, at a well in chapter 4. But wedged in between these two conversations, uh, one with Nicodemus and one with the woman at the well, well, we have today's passage where we return to the ministry of John the Baptist. Why is this passage about John the Baptist here? Well, I want to suggest that it's here because just like that third runner in the Jamaican relay team passing the baton to the final runner who will go off to glory, the ministry of John the Baptist marks an important transition to the ministry of Jesus, the Son of God. And that's why if you have a look at chapter 3, verse 30, now just glance down with me at chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist says these important words. He says, he, that is Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. That is, now that Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, is here, my God-given job is done. I must fade into the background, for now is the time for the glory of the Messiah to shine. However, friends, notice that the transition between the ministry of John the Baptist to the ministry of Jesus was not exactly a smooth one, for it was a transition marked by jealousy. Uh, You can see it there in John's account of the baptism ministries of Jesus uh, as well as John the Baptist. Uh, If you have a look at verse 22, uh, have a look with me at verse 22, uh, you can see there that we are told that Uh, Jesus was baptizing people in the Judean countryside, uh, which, uh, if you know, um, you know, uh, the geography of Israel was sort of towards the south of Israel. Uh, Later, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 2, John clarifies that it was not actually Jesus who was doing the baptizing, uh, it was actually his disciples. And uh, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because uh, if you remember, many of Jesus' first disciples were actually the disciples of John the Baptist. And so it kind of makes sense that they would be uh, carrying on this baptism ministry. But notice that it's not just Jesus' disciples who were baptizing, for if you have a look at the very next verse, in verse uh, 23, 
We're told that John the Baptist was also baptizing at a place called Aon near Selim, uh, which uh, people are not exactly sure where it is, but um, the best guess is that it was somewhere to the north of Israel in the region of Samaria. Further, in verse 25, we're told that some of John's disciples were having a conversation uh, with an unnamed Jewish person. Uh, what were they talking about? Well, you can see there that they were talking about the issue of purification. Again, uh, that makes sense, doesn't it? For if nothing else, baptism has something to do with purification before God. That was what baptism symbolised. But perhaps during the course of this conversation, the unnamed Jewish person tells the disciples of John about the baptisms that were going on towards the north. The baptisms that were being conducted by Jesus and his disciples. Uh, that's why in verse 26 it triggers the disciples to uh, rush directly to John the Baptist and say these words. They say, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. All are going to him. Now that's a bit of an exaggeration, isn't it? Well, we've just been told that people were still going to John the Baptist for, for baptism. But here the disciples of John are saying, well, everyone is going to Jesus for baptism. Do you detect a hint of jealousy here in what the disciples are saying? Perhaps, you know, they're thinking, in the past we had this thriving, growing, fruitful ministry. But now everyone is going somewhere else. It's not uncommon for people to feel jealous for all sorts of reasons. But it's not uncommon for people to feel jealous in Christian ministry and witness, is it? I mean, imagine with me for a moment if uh, a new church was planted just down the road in another part of Strathfield. Uh, they must have a lot of money because uh, they've just built a brand new building. Uh, you hear on the grapevine that they have this uh, wonderful pastor that gives so much better sermons than what you hear uh, here from week to week. Uh, you hear that they have a huge cry room with the latest AV systems so that parents can actually hear what's going on in the service. You hear that they have a great band with professional musicians. You even hear that their coffee is better than ours. I know that's not possible, but uh, just imagine with me. And you hear that hundreds of people are flocking to that church each week, and after a while you even start to see some of our own missing as they slowly drift over there. Would you feel a slight tinge of jealousy, I wonder? It's quite common for those in full-time Christian ministry to feel like this as well, to be fair. Uh, you know, I sometimes catch up with my pastor friends for a coffee, and uh, whenever we meet together, we inevitably speak about ministry and how ministry is going. 
Um, perhaps someone reports that people have been flocking to their church and now they're running out of room. Uh, perhaps another reports that last month they baptised ten new converts. Perhaps another reports that someone left a million dollars to their church in their will and now they're going to upgrade their facilities. And even as I try to be happy for my friends, uh, in the bottom of my heart, there is often a, a tinge of, of jealousy. Have you ever felt that? Whenever other people do well, but in particular, when other people do well in ministry. Or is that just me? But what does John the Baptist say when his disciples come to him with their jealousy? Well, I want you to see that in what follows, John effectively says, it's not about me, it's about him. It's not about the growth of my ministry, it's about the increase of his ministry. Now, you might have, might have noticed that the very first thing that John the Baptist says to his disciples uh, sounds a little bit cryptic. Um, for if you have a look at uh, verse 27, have a look with me at verse 27, uh, John the Baptist says these words. He says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Sounds a bit cryptic, doesn't it? Sounds a little bit like Yoda. Uh, you don't, sounds good, but you don't quite know what he's saying. <laughs> but what is he talking about here? And how does this answer the jealousy of the disciples? Or more specifically, when John says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven, uh, who is receiving what? From heaven might be a more specific question to ask well there are a number of possibilities aren't there uh, perhaps John the Baptist is saying that Jesus's ministry has been given to him from heaven and so there's no need to feel jealous because if his ministry has been given by God from heaven then you can't stop it and it will it will continue to grow that's what he might be saying or perhaps uh, John the Baptist is saying to his disciples that their ministry has been given to God, uh, given by God in heaven. And so he might be saying that to his disciples, you don't need to feel jealous because you know, God has given you your ministry and he's in control. And if he wants to grow uh, our ministry, then he'll grow it in due course. However, friends, I, I want to suggest that what John the Baptist is speaking about here is neither of those things. Rather, he's speaking about his ministry of being the forerunner to the Messiah, which has been given to him from heaven. Uh, if you remember, we've already seen in previous weeks, in chapter 1, that John the Baptist says he is the voice that announces the coming of the Messiah. In other words, John the Baptist's ministry was to be like a, a loud megaphone announcing the arrival of God's Messiah and King. And now that the Messiah is here, he's saying it's not only okay for him to fade into the background, but it is imperative that he fades into the background so that the ministry of the Messiah might take center stage, you see. That's why in verse 28, John the Baptist stresses once again that he is not the Christ or the Messiah, 
but that he has been sent to be the forerunner to the Christ. Further, in verse 29, uh, John the Baptist stresses that he is not the bridegroom, but he is the friend of the bridegroom. Uh, You might remember that in the Old Testament, uh, God's people are often described as the bride, and God himself is often described as a bridegroom, or the bridegroom, who loves his bride and is prepared to pay any cost to win her over. Uh, We saw this in today's Old Testament reading, uh, didn't we, in Isaiah chapter 62. But here, John the Baptist knows that his role and ministry has been given to him by God, and it is not to be the bridegroom, who is the Messiah and God himself, rather his role is to be the friend of the bridegroom, uh, or the best man, if you like. Now, uh, in modern weddings, the best man doesn't do a whole lot, to, to be honest, does he? Um, I mean, last week, some of us witnessed the, the wedding of Josh and Mary, who had come to our congregation. Uh, but Josh's brother, Eddie, who was the best man, frankly, didn't do a lot. <laughs> uh, he just rocked up. He just stood there. Um, he had some rings in his pocket. He gave a short speech. But that's pretty much all he did. However, in Jesus' day, the best man had a much more important role. For he was the one who would organize the whole wedding itself. In other words, he was a bit more like the wedding coordinator rather than the best man of modern weddings. And his job was to make sure that he would organize everything and get everything right because it was his great joy that when the time of the wedding came, his friend could take center stage. Now that's why in verse 29, John the Baptist can say these words. He says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. It's because as the friend of the bridegroom, he knows that the wedding day has arrived. He knows that his job is now complete. He knows that it is now Jesus's time to shine as the bridegroom, as the Messiah, as God himself. It's not about me. It's about him. Now, friends, I hope you understand that the ministry of John the Baptist uh, is not our ministry. For John the Baptist was given a unique role from heaven as the voice who would announce the arrival of the Messiah and witness to him. In fact, in John's Gospel, many commentators have noticed that John is not presented as John the Baptist, as he is in in other Gospels, but he is presented as John the Witness, because that was his God-given role and job. That's why, as we have seen in verse 30, John the Baptist says, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. In other words, there is a a mustness, a necessity to John now stepping aside for Jesus to now take center stage. And yet, at the same time, uh, I want to suggest that the attitude of John the Baptist towards ministry and witness is actually a wonderful example for all of us. For 
to be a disciple of Jesus means to be somebody who says, it's not about me, it's about him. It's not about me and my comfort and my ease and my prosperity, but life is about Jesus and the increase of his kingdom, you see. Is that what your life is about? And my life is all about? Uh, my wife and I uh, know a lovely Christian couple who left uh, a large church in the Bible Belt of Sydney where they could have been very comfortable and spend the rest of their lives in respectable positions of leadership in their local church. But do you know what they did? Well, they decided to leave their comfortable church, sell their comfortable house, and leave their comfortable ministry, and move to the southwest of Sydney, where they are now sharing the gospel in a much needier church, in an area that is ridden with poverty and drugs, but full of people who need to hear about Jesus. It's not about me. It's about him. I know of another man who was a, a senior minister of a large Anglican church in Sydney. Uh, he could have stayed in that position and kept getting paid until retirement, where he could have lived very comfortably for the rest of his life. But you know what he did? Well, he felt that as he got older, um, he was getting in the way of church growing, and so he decided to step down and go to a smaller church where he is now working under somebody else at a place that needs the gospel. It's not about me. It's about the increase of Jesus. Uh, my wife and I, I often think uh, these days about where we should be in the next uh, few years of our ministry life. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, um, we love this church. But perhaps we ought to one day go somewhere else where there is a greater need for ministry and witness and not be so comfortable because it is not about us. It is about the increase of him. Perhaps some of you should think about leaving the comforts and friendships of this church and go to other places where you could be of more use in seeing the increase of Jesus and his kingdom. Many of you travel long distances to get to our church, and uh, uh, that's, a, that's a great thing, and we want you to be committed here, and there's lots of gospel work to do here. But sometimes we pass many churches who desperately need disciples of Jesus so that the kingdom can increase and multiply in that area. Perhaps it might be good for some of us to leave because it's not about our comfort but the increase of Jesus. Many of you will know the name John Calvin. Calvin was one of the great pastors during the Reformation of the 16th century. Uh, his influence is still felt today as his writings are still read by serious students of the Bible some 500 years after his death. Uh, when I was at Moore College, we were all required to uh, read John Calvin's masterpiece called uh, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, which some of you might have heard about, as a condition of graduation. Uh, John Calvin was one of the greats. 
But what you might not know is that when Calvin died at the age of 54, he insisted on being buried in an unmarked grave, in a marshy cemetery, without any fanfare or, uh, fanfare or ceremony. Why did this great man of faith insist on this? Well, it's because he knew that after his death, some people would be tempted to make ministry all about him and to idolize uh, his teachings. But you see, Calvin knew what ministry is all about. It's not about me. It's about him and the increase of his kingdom. But why must Jesus' ministry increase? Why is it that Jesus' ministry must now take center stage and grow? Well, in the final part of our passage this morning, John the Baptist stops speaking. And we now hear the words of John the Gospel writer. And John the Gospel writer says that Jesus' ministry must now increase because of who he is and what he has come to do in God's plans for the world. Who is Jesus? Well, John is adamant that Jesus is God's son who has come from heaven to earth to be the king of all things. You can see it there in verse 31, can't you? Verse 31, John says that Jesus is above all things because he, he is the one who has come from above. He's not like John the Baptist who is of the earth and therefore is finite and limited and restricted in what he can do. No, Jesus is the one from above. And so he is above all things. He is the king of all things. He is the ruler of all things. He has a claim on all things in this world, including your life and my life. You can see it again in verse 35, can't you? Jesus is the one whom the Father loves and has given all things into his hand. In other words, Jesus is the one who is loved by God the Father and who has now been entrusted to be the king of all things and who has been given all things into his hand. But what does Jesus come to do? Well, John tells us in these final few verses that Jesus is the one who has not only come to be the king of this world forever, but to be the saviour of this world. I think you can see this in verse 32, where John says, um, He, that is Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. Uh, what has Jesus, who has come from above, seen and heard in heaven? Well, I think the answer lies uh, just to uh, the in the early stages of chapter 3, which we saw in previous weeks. It's where Jesus says that as the one who has come from heaven, chapter 3, verse 14, as the one who has come from heaven, he will be the one who will be lifted up on a cross so that all will look to him for eternal life. In other words, the thing that Jesus has seen and heard in heaven is his mission to come and die on a cross so that sinners like you and me who have rejected and ignored and brushed God off from our lives, 
can be forgiven and have eternal life. That's why, friends, responding rightly to Jesus as God's Son is such a serious thing. If Jesus really is God's King who will rule this world forever, and if Jesus really is the one that God himself has gone to such great lengths to send into this world to die on a cross so that you can be saved from God's rightful and anger and condemnation over your life because of sin, then what can be more important in this life than to respond rightly to him? And friends, there are only two ways to respond to Jesus. The right way is to receive Jesus as your King and Saviour and to trust him and to obey his words in your life for salvation. John describes such a person who, who responds in this way in verse 33, doesn't he? He says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now, we don't use uh, seals very much anymore, but uh, in my growth group, we have a lawyer called Tim, who told us this week that in his office, uh, he has this big seal. Um, in fact, I don't actually know whether it's big or not. I just imagine it to be a big seal uh, sitting in his office. Uh, but what does Tim use this seal for? Well, he uses it to certify documents that he considers to be true and accurate. Uh, that's what John is saying here, isn't he? The person who responds rightly to God is the one who can set his seal, who can certify, who can say, yes, I agree, that God is telling the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus has come into this world to do. Because Jesus is the one who speaks the very words of God and is attested to be truthful by the Holy Spirit himself. It is those who respond to Jesus in this way who are the ones who will receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life from God himself. But there is a wrong way to respond to Jesus, isn't there? What is that wrong way? Well, it is to reject Jesus as the king of your life and the saviour of your soul. It is to keep on delaying a decision to crown him as the king of your life and to take him seriously so that he can rule your life. For if God himself has gone to such great lengths to send his very own precious only son to be the king and saviour of this world and to be your king and saviour, then to reject him is an unspeakably arrogant thing to do, don't you think? That's why John ends our passage today with these words in verse 36. He says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him.
it's interesting here that whilst the ones who believe in the Son or trust the Son have eternal life, it's the ones who do not obey the Son, who do not see life, but rather face God's righteous anger and wrath and condemnation. For to reject the Son is the greatest act of disobedience. It is the greatest sin, the greatest evil, the greatest affront to God who has gone to such extraordinary lengths to show his love for sinners like you and me. And so how will you respond to Jesus who is God's son? Will you receive him as your king and saviour and have eternal life? Will you live for him so that life is now no longer about myself but about him and the increase of his kingdom? Or will you reject him as your king and saviour and face God's wrath? God speaks of only two responses. To sit on the fence is to sit on the side of rejection. To think that one day in the future you will be able to decide to follow Jesus is to sit on the side of rejection. And so will you decide today, will you receive Jesus as your king and your saviour so that you will not receive wrath, but forgiveness? Will you receive Jesus as your King and Saviour, so that you will not receive eternal death, but eternal life? And will you receive Jesus as your King and Saviour, so that you will not live for yourself, but live for Him and the increase of His kingdom? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning and we thank you so much for this passage about the ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, We thank you that he ran his race and faithfully announced the Messiah and witnessed to him as the King and Saviour of this world. Uh, Father, we pray that like John the Baptist, we might live not for ourselves but for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the increase of his kingdom. And we pray especially this morning that the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ might continue to increase and grow in this world through the preaching of the gospel so that many might find life in his name. We pray especially during the upcoming Easter season that you would help us to be faithful witnesses to this Jesus as the King and Saviour of the world. And we pray and ask that in our local communities in our local area of Strathfield, as well as in our circle of friends, that you might help many to believe in Jesus as God's Son, so that they too might have new birth and a new life in him. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name.